Could you please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7? If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 7. If you've got a smartphone, we're using the ESV. There's some Bibles also on the back table. If you want one um, this morning, you probably want an open Bible. Um, very nice. If you're, if you're part of this church, you're in shock and awe right now that there's a PowerPoint up there. Uh, one slide. Um, baby steps for me. Um, I don't do this normally. I'm not doing it next week. Um, uh, I hate technology apart from my hearing aid. Um, so, Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Last week we focused on Hebrews 7 uh, verses 1 to 10, making sense of uh, Melchizedek. And we also went back into uh, Genesis 14, where this priest king Melchizedek shows up uh, and uh, meets with Abraham and kind of moves on. And here he is referenced in Hebrews 7 in the New Testament. We are going to cover the whole of chapter 7 today, partly because I think at this point in the book there is a temptation that if we go too slowly, we don't see uh, the big picture and the author of Hebrews' point. This section is, is helping us understand the difference between Jesus' priesthood and the Levitical priesthood of Old Covenant Judaism, right? So that's the, the priests of the Old Testament. Where you've got a temple, you've got animal sacrifices, you've got offerings to God. That priesthood uh, that you can read about in Numbers and Leviticus and, and Exodus and so on. In Hebrews 7, 7.15, we're told that Jesus is a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek which is telling us that Jesus is a different sort of priest. And the writer is telling these people, don't go back to those that temple, don't go back to the old covenant priesthood, don't go back to the Levitical priest, we've got something better. That's why he's saying this. This has enormous implications for us, and I mean that. I doubt anyone here is tempted to go back to Old Covenant Judaism, but we must uh, still wrestle with the fact that everybody needs a priest. Everyone needs a priest. And the reason for that is because of the function of a priest. A priest is a mediator between people and God. A priest represents people before a holy God. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, after they sinned, they hid in their shame. When we understand even something of our sin and our rebellion against God, it leads to shame and it causes us to tend to, to hide away from God. More than that, just realistically, it keeps us from coming to God. The reason for that is simply that a holy God is unlike us. 
Those who sin are unholy. We come to a God who is, is completely without sin. We come to a God who is not created. We come to a God who is qualitatively, quantitatively, every metric possible different to us. We cannot come to Him. This entire passage of Hebrews 7 is about how a person draws near to God. Jesus, the Son of God, became like us, though without sin, to bring us to God. And so to summarize Hebrews 7, I would say this. Jesus is the great high priest of the order of Melchizedek, where we find the basis of our assurance, our hope, and that allows us to persevere in the Christian life. Let's read together Hebrews 7 about our great high priest. Take us about four minutes, and we're going to read it all because we value the Word of God, do we not? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And these descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lived to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we would have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, Appoint the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is the Word of God. Big text. I got five points to summarize this up. Five points, that's a very famous uh, number of points for some of you. Um, Okay, five points. And they're not, because it's not, a lot of the argument is, is, is repeated. Uh, That's what preachers do. They repeat themselves and then they talk about it and then they repeat their previous point. So five points, and I've got the verses that I've taken these points from so you can see my workings. And I just want to do this because we're doing such a big section. Firstly, Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical priests, verses 1 to 10 and 15. Secondly, Jesus is of a better order, verses 11 to 15. Jesus is of a better appointment, verses 13 to 24. Jesus guarantees a better covenant, 12, 18, 19, 22. And Jesus provides better priestly benefits. That's the end, verse 25 to 28. So firstly, this is the section that we mostly looked at last week, so I'm not going to completely go over it all, but Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical That's the big starting uh, main point. Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews 5. He's mentioned at the end of chapter 6, and then he is mentioned here in chapter 7. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek shows up after Abraham, who you don't think of as much of a warrior, has won a battle against four kings led by a man called Chedorlaomer of Elam. It was a lot of fun pronouncing that name in home group as we were all reading it. Um, this group of guys, including the king, the king from where the Tower of Babel was built in Genesis 11, right, had captured Abraham's nephew, who was named Lot, and after defeating five kings, including the king of Sodom, right? So these four kings defeated five kings, and they carried away Abraham's nephew. 
Abraham gets together a band of men. He rescues a lot. He defeats the uh, other army. He has the spoils of war with him. And this is where Melchizedek shows up. Melchizedek is said to be king of Salem and priest of God Most High, just simply the God of the Bible. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He gives Abraham food and drink for refreshment, then he prays a priestly blessing upon Abraham and says to him that God has given you this victory. Abraham then pays a tithe or a tenth part of the spoils to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek leaves. And kind of along with that, and the important thing I mentioned last week, and then the rest of the spoils is just given back to where they came from amongst those uh, five kings that had uh, just been defeated in the army. And the reason Abraham doesn't keep anything for himself is because he's acknowledging that God is to be king in the land of Canaan. God is to be king in this area. And Abraham doesn't want to take the role of king for himself. And we heard last week, and it's mentioned here in uh, verse uh, 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek is an acknowledgement that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Abraham is father of the nation of Israel. If you ask a Jew who's the greatest Jew, they'll tell you, some some might say Moses or David, but at the end of the day, Abraham wins the title. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. And because Abraham pays this tithe to Melchizedek, the logical argument is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So you've got no Jew that is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek. And the reason Melchizedek is mentioned is because his priesthood resembles that of the Son of God. That's what it says in verse 3. And then in verse 15 it says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. And I want to make this abundantly clear. Because many of you have said this whole concept of Melchizedek was confusing to you, uh, and you just kind of wondered what it was doing there. Melchizedek is not being talked about for Melchizedek's sake. We understand that? We grasp that? We're being told about Melchizedek to better understand Jesus' greatness compared to everyone else and his greatness specifically as a priest. And so the argument then comes in Hebrews 7, towards verse 10, that the Levites, the priestly tribe in Israel, were were paid tithes by the rest of the people. So the 11 tribes paid tithes to them so they they could live and do their priestly duties. The Levites actually paid tithes as descendants of Abraham 
They're still in his loins, in verse 10. They actually paid tithes to Melchizedek as well. Abraham, in some sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek on behalf of all of Israel. So this gives us a quite simple, big, small argument. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than the Levitical priest. And therefore, Jesus, who Melchizedek points to, is greater than them all. That's our argument. We see this then developed in verses 11 to 15, where Jesus is better than the Levitical priest because he comes from a better order. All those old covenant priests came from the tribe of Levi, the greatest being Aaron, and the sons of Aaron being the high priest. Kings were not from the tribe of Levi. Kings were from the tribe of Judah. The greatest being David. And so Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, he's called the son of David. In the book of Revelation, John calls uh, Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. You heard that? Apparently very popular in reggae albums. You know, I'm, I'm not sure we've got many fans here. But the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's not Haile Selassie, that's Jesus. Right? Jesus is a priest king. That office a priest who is also a king, does not exist under Mosaic law. It doesn't exist under the old covenant laws. And therefore, we must ask ourselves, why is Jesus able to be a priest king? The answer the writer of Hebrews gives us is that because Jesus is not under the Levitical or the Aaronic order. He doesn't fit in that paradigm. He's of a different order, the order of Melchizedek, and therefore he's able to be a priest and a king. This matters. It seems insignificant. It seems like a simple fact. This does matter. Verse 11 tells us, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? That is a strong word. It's saying there was no perfection possible under the Levitical priesthood. There was no perfection possible under the Mosaic law. No perfection possible under that Old Testament priesthood and its sacrifice. And what this means to us, and this is what the people are being told, that assurance of salvation, of reconciliation to God, of forgiveness of sin, did not happen because of that Old Testament priesthood. It was not ultimately because of that. Yes, priests offered sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, but the author of Hebrews is telling us that the whole Old Testament priesthood system 
did not bring about the reality that it symbolized. The shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation to God, it could not bring about the reality that it was symbolically showing forth. Now that doesn't mean it wasn't God's plan for a season. The Apostle Paul says these things in books like Galatians. But it was temporary. It was a temporary system. It was pointing to something that would come later, and that is Jesus, the Messiah. And that argument is going to go all the way from here into chapter 10. Okay, so keep coming. We'll keep looking at how the the writer uh, brings this argument about. And so this is telling us, because Jesus is based on a better order in his priesthood, his priesthood is not based on the Old Testament priesthood. And so third point we have is Jesus is of a better appointment. A better appointment. Ask yourself this. How did the Levite get his job? How did a high priest get his job? The answer is by virtue of who his father was. Just simple hereditary deal. Kind of like the the British monarchy right now. Who your mother and father are determines your role. That's how you, you your descent as sons of Levi and Aaron. That gave you your title. And that was based on the law of Moses under the Old Covenant, uh, and specifically in the book of Numbers. That's why you should read about, read the book of Numbers, because it's in there. Uh, Jesus' role as great high priest is not based on that descent. It's based on two things, which we read about in this section from 13 to 24. The power of an indestructible life and the oath of God. It is based on the fact that Jesus lives forever and that God has sworn an oath to make him a priest forever. And so this calls to mind for us the gospel. This calls to mind the good news. That Jesus Christ was was born, that he lived a perfect life, that he died upon a cross, cursed as everyone who hangs upon a tree, he bore the curse of sin. On the third day, he rose again and then ascended to the right hand of the Father as priest. It calls to mind the fact, and that's what we call the good news, it calls to mind the fact that Jesus is alive. That because he lives, he is able to be priest. And because he lives, we too may live. Jesus is alive. He is the firstborn from the dead. A type of a church to come of resurrected people. That when we die, we too shall not taste death for all eternity, but shall receive new bodies, just like he did. He has an indestructible life, the power of an indestructible life, unlike the Levitical priest. And then it says, there is the oath of God. And that oath, you see some quotes here in Hebrews 
uh, the latter part of Hebrews 7, it says verse 17 uh, and verse 21. Those are quotes that come out of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the, the oath where the oath is made. And our text makes the point that that oath came after the Old Covenant law was given. So God ordains a, a, an Old Covenant priesthood through the Levites, and then to David, a few hundred years later, in Psalm 110, he makes a promise about a priest king. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh, God, says to David's Lord, my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Who's he speaking of? Christ. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is a picture of Jesus Christ being king, sitting at the right hand of majesty on high. And then, in Psalm 110, verse 4, and that's where these quotes are coming from, it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There will be a king, there will be a priest of a different order to the current setup that David is writing this under. And that is how Jesus was appointed. Not by the Old Covenant ceremonial law, not from being a descendant of Levi, because he was not a Levite, but because of his indestructible life and by God's promise, God's oath. So it is a better, better appointment. This then brings about a fundamental change in how God relates to his people. Fourth point, Jesus guarantees a better covenant. We're going to see this from next week onwards. God relates to people on the basis of a covenantal relationship. And we're going to get into that. That's chapters 8 through 10 as well. Having given Israel at Mount Sinai the Old Covenant, after they had just come out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them a covenant. The priests were called to assume their role based on the Old Covenant laws. And they were supposed to carry them out in fulfillment of the Old Covenant laws. You know, you need to kill the bull before you offer the lamb, and you need to put the blood here, and you need to do all of that. That's what they did. The priest was required to carry out the parts of the Old Covenant laws that related to uh, the worship of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us something that is quite remarkable, and it's in verse 12. He says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Why did we not? slaughter a lamb before we came in this morning? Why is there no candles going in here? Why, why, why is there no more a holy of holies with a big veil in front? 
Because when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. That's a huge deal. That just, just really helps us understand the Old Testament and its purpose. And it really understands now its place. We have a new type of priest, therefore there is a new type of covenant. There's a new way of God relating to people. That old one is obsolete. Stop offering Old Testament sacrifices through a temple or through priests. Don't do it. It's done. There was a shockingly blunt reason given for this need for a better covenant. Look at verse 18 and 19. If, you, if, if you're a Jew with any level of sympathy for the Old Testament system, and you're at least a little bit tempted to go back to it, like some of these people writing this, this will make you mad, or it'll change your mind. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Wow. Weakness and uselessness. That's why we need a new priesthood. That's why we need a new law. Do you know that God's law is good? The totality of the law was good. The summary of his moral law and the Ten Commandments is good. It shows his attributes and his character. We must not denigrate the law. But there's a problem. For us, the law does not give us the power to keep it. That's a very important point. The law does not give the power to obey and keep the law. And... The law does not provide ultimate satisfaction or atonement for breaking of the law. It brings condemnation. It brings about a ministry of death. When we say things like, oh, we just need to love God and love others. Well, hold on. That's not good news. I want to be the first person to admit, I'm not very good at loving others some of the time. Right? And because it's God's law, that means there's God's punishment for breaking it. Should we love God and love others? Yes. But we need some help for our failure to do it, and we also need some help to be able to keep it. So we need a new covenant. And so what this text is telling us is that anyone who was saved, anyone in Israel who had their sins forgiven, was saved under the Old Covenant, but not by the Old Covenant. But instead, by faith in the promised Messiah that that Old Covenant was picturing in types and shadows. Jesus' priesthood changes this because he brings about a new covenant under which we are actually able to be saved. And in verse 22, it makes this very explicitly clear. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's why we sing that song, it says, Before the throne my surety stands. 
Huh? Before the throne, my surety stands. Before God's throne, my guarantee is standing there. My guarantee of that better covenant. This is very good news. And now let us apply it with the last point. Jesus provides better priestly benefits. You notice, you notice it says in verse 25, Consequently, it's a preacher's way of saying, this is why this matters. This is the so what moment. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That the priest who lives forever, who is appointed by the earth of God and the power of an indestructible life, is always praying for his people. And he allows us to draw near to God. You know, we won't treasure Christ as priest until we know how much we need one. We won't treasure Christ as priest until we realize how far away we are from God without a mediator to bring us to God. Paul tells us that we are enemies of God apart from Him. But Christ brings us to Him. By trusting in our priest, by trusting in our mediator, He brings us to Him. To summarize this argument, priests were born, they served, they died, and they were replaced. That's the cycle. And therefore there were lots of them. This priest is alive and seated at the right hand of God. And what that means is that your security is permanent before God because your priest is permanently with God. That is assurance of salvation. The other problem with the old covenant priests is that they were sinners themselves. Go read Leviticus 16. The guy had to kill a bull before he could even offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. The bull was for himself. Thousands upon thousands of bulls and goats offered for the people and for the priests themselves from 1400 B.C. all the way up to Jesus' day. Over and over and over, bloody sacrifice everywhere. And we're told here that Jesus is perfect, innocent, unstained, holy. Just like your security is permanent because your priest is permanent, your security is perfect because your priest is perfect. A holy Savior brings you to a holy God. He intercedes for you, he saves to the uttermost, and therefore he's better. What's the application? Be thankful and make use of your priest by trusting in him. Let's pray.